don't know if you know this. Catherine Hepburn, very famous for her brownies. Is she real? Was she I'm really? I'm not lying. Google Catherine Hepburn's brownie recipe. <laughs> it's a thing. Hi, and welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. Today, we are concluding our month-long journey through the screwball comedy genre. And as usual, our final episode of the month is dedicated to a director who is synonymous with our month's genre theme. For this episode, we are talking about writer-director Preston Sturgis, a man who put screwball and screwball comedy. Um, but before we dive into that, Thomas, can you give us a brief recap of what we've talked about this month? Yeah, so the screwball comedy, as we've discussed, is a genre that was born out of the Great Depression. It's a romantic comedy that that makes fun of romance. We've talked about, you know, whether it's a character, characters that are breaking up in a comedy of divorce, like Philadelphia Story, or characters that are finding each other, especially with a, a Howard Hawks, a Hawksian woman uh, who kind of drives the the action and, and especially kind of dra- drags the, the male character into this adventure, uh, like we've discussed with Bringing a Baby and then What's Up Doc, obviously. But uh, it's this romantic comedy that skewers class, it skewers wealth, it skewers the the traditional type of love. And in doing all of that, we've also discussed a lot that it also has a lot of sex mixed up in it, but yeah. all under the surface because of the Hayes Code. Uh, so a lot of that very fast dialogue that is uh, that is characteristic of the genre is all very quippy, very fast, very witty, but it's almost all double entendres. This is a genre of, of many, many double entendres. And uh, sometimes they, they weren't as subtle, which we might see uh, today um, as, as some, yeah. of the, some of the other films that we've discussed. But but yeah, it was overall, it was just it was a fun uh, comedic genre, especially during the Great Depression and World War Two. It was a, a kind of a break for everyone from the, the more kind of sa- I don't want to say sappy, but, you know, the more yeah. uh, over the top romances that had come before. Uh, this was more of a, of a satire almost of those kind of films and a satire of kind of classism and and wealth and, and the upper class often. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's it was kind of a genre that was a little bit of like escapism for mm-hmm. American audiences. And it was specifically within the American audience at this point in the 30s and the 40s. Um, and yeah, it was very much this, we talk about kind of the class thing. It was funny because uh when researching Preston Sturgis one of the things he said is that like millionaires are funny and I don't mm-hmm. know I guess he means just like what how they might act and that's gonna come into play I think with some of the films we talk about today um of how he portrays the wealthy mm-hmm. um in in his films uh yeah all, all the stuff we talked about he he's very much when talking about Preston Sturgis all the stuff that we talked about in the screwball comedy genre this month uh besides I mean there, there's not I mean I guess you could say there's kind of a Hoxian woman through some of the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. Lady, I think Lady many e of his films, yeah, I think many of his films follow a very strong female character who um, is kind of knows what she wants and is out to get it. Yeah, I think it, all all of those ones that do that are the ones that would fit into the screwball comedy type genre. Some of his early, his like one we'll talk about a little bit is the Great McGinty, which is a little bit more like political satire mm-hmm. um, that doesn't have that as much. Um, so yeah, before, uh, coming into this, 
like what were your thoughts on Preston Sturgis or what, what did you know about him? Yeah, I I had studied Preston Sturgis a little bit. I I took a screwball comedy class in college. I might have brought this up, but mm-hmm. we we touched on Sullivan's Travels as one of the first like real screwball comedies early on. Um be, because it was so of all the screwball comedies, I think especially when you're exploring the influences of the Great Depression and kind of the classism satire, mm-hmm. I think Sullivan's Travels is one of the most uh obvious you know when yeah. you're, when you're looking into the 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 great depression of it all it's it's one of the only films that really is like acknowledges that the great depression is happening as these films are, are going on uh and so we watched that one i had seen the lady eve as well i'm a big barbara stanwick fan and uh obviously big henry F- fonda fan so I, I had visited that one at some point but other than that i really hadn't dived into press and Sturgis. like a lot of yeah. these films while they it's been interesting to go back and watch these because a lot of these are kind of textbook screwball comedies but there's i don't know it's it's very interesting there's a quality to them and we'll we'll get onto this but it's it's a lot of these movies we've watched this month are wacky but i feel like preston sturgis is like another level of wackiness within the screwball comedy and so i feel like some of these do kind of get sidelined a little bit because they might not have quite as much mainstream appeal as something like the Philadelphia story, which is, which is very comedic, but it's also kind of takes place in the real world. Yeah. And, and a lot of his films feel like they don't. <laughs> it's weird. Cause, uh, one of the articles we read was this vanity fair article. And they kind of talk about, it's a really good article on Preston Sturgis. And they talk about how like, he's great until he gets like too slapsticky. Mm-hmm. Like Preston Sturgis, big thing was like his Pratt. Like a lot of his characters had Pratt falls. Mm-hmm. Like, Fonda and Lady Eve, uh, William uh, Demarest and Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Like, he loved Pratt Falls. And so there's moments where it becomes a little, like, too out of this world. But he's also a guy, a filmmaker at this point, where, as we're talking about him showing the Depression, he weirdly shows a lot of different facets of America that we haven't really seen at that point, or weren't really seeing at that point in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, like even, uh, it's a scene in say Sullivan's travels where like it's takes place at like an African American church in like the country, like a mm-hmm. swampland country. And it's not really, it's not played for jokes. It's a very like serious scene of this like black ple- preacher who is talking to his congregation and then has inmates come in to watch a movie. Like it's a very serious moment that I don't really know. Of. That's not usually in movies of that nature at this point where it's turned to a joke of some way, and that doesn't really he doesn't really do that. Um, but yeah, he he he's a director. I I learned about him because I knew the Cohen brothers were a big fan of Preston Sturgis because hmm. the big thing is that the movie in Selvin's Travels that the the lead character is trying to make yeah. is called Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Mm-hmm. And then Cohen Brothers make Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and there are similar kind of moments in both those films uh, in terms of the traveling, the road trip aspect of it. Um, so yeah, before I think when we did Screwball Comedy a few years ago, when we first kind of did this whole genre study thing, I watched a few more of his films, like Palm Beach Story, and I think I watched also one of his, a few of the ones he had written called Easy Living and Remember the Night. Um, so it's been, 
even though I'd seen some of those, it was interesting coming back to them and watch them all like in not the same sitting, but in the same like short span of time. Yeah. Uh, and seeing how they all kind of play together. And we'll talk about some of the recurring things that happen in his films. Cause weirdly, like they, they're definitely all from the same person. Yeah. Is the thing. They, they Which is all super feel. interesting. He, he's yeah. so interesting to look at for this time period too. Cause there weren't a lot of writer directors no. at that point in the, in the Hollywood system. And so to have, to watch these movies and be like, this is his voice, like unfiltered is, is really interesting for better or for worse. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we watched a, a little kind of video essay that Peter Bogdanovich put together about his work. And, and he talked about how the studio wanted him to cut back his pratfalls. And he was like, no, I'm not cutting back my pratfalls. And Bogdanovich seems to love it, which is funny, you know, having watched what's up doc. And, and, and you and I, you know, we hadn't, when we were talking about what's up doc a few weeks ago, we hadn't, kind of dive back into Preston Sturgis yet and we were like where is all this physical comedy coming from uh and, like, it's, it's, and then it's like boom that's the Preston Sturgis influence and then I, I think yeah. it's very funny that Peter Bogdanovich says specifically in that video essay like no one everyone is pitch perfect in his movies no one ever overplays their hands and I was like I, I might disagree with you a little bit on that one Peter <laughs> there's a little bit yeah it's it's I know uh in the same Vanity Fair article it talks about how like all of his films are great, but they're like one step away from being like perfection. Mm. But going off the whole writer director, there's a lot of backstory behind that. Um, and we'll talk about it here. So I guess we'll, we'll jump into the early beginnings of Preston Sturgis um, with some of the research that I got from this, or a lot of research came from uh, his autobiography that he wrote Preston Sturgis by Preston Sturgis. <laughs> it, it came out he actually was writing it in the midst of like before he died so it, it was kind of incomplete and his wife at the time sandy sturgis came in and kind of helped finish it up came out about 30 years after his death so on august 29th 1898 edmund preston biden was born in chicago illinois to Mary Estelle Dempsey and Edmund C. Biden. Any any relation? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know. I have to look <laughs> that up. I couldn't find that. Uh, Preston's mother was eccentric, and when Preston was three years old, she moved to Paris with Preston, be Preston to become a singer. She was able to get her marriage annulled from Biden, who was a traveling salesman at the time, out of Chicago. Um, while in Paris, Mary became friends with Isadora Duncan, who would later become one of the most famous dancers of her era that toured around all of Western Europe and the Soviet Union. But when Mary met Isadora, Isadora was not at that stature yet. She was just starting off as a dancer. And Isadora and Mary became inseparable, and they would travel together all over Europe with Preston in tow. And Preston would become friends with Isadora's daughter named Temple. And Preston would later say this was the first girl he truly loved <laughs> Uh, as a child. Um, uh, Mary and Preston returned to America in 1902 for a time, and that is when Mary met her next husband. It was actually her third husband, uh, Solomon Sturgis, a wealthy stockbroker out of Chicago. Solomon would adopt Preston, which is where he got his name from, and he changed his name to Preston Sturgis. Um, Solomon was the opposite of Mary. When Mary returned to France, she would wear Grecian gowns and sandals, because it was all the rage in Europe. And she'd also made Preston wear it to school, which Preston later said made him made him become the best street fighter in all of Chicago. <laughs> uh, Solomon convinced Mary to only wear the Grecian gowns at home and not in public, and that also included Preston in the deal. 
Um, but he was again, like stockbroker, very kind of conservative, straight laced guy. And she was this kind of eccentric, uh, kind of free spirited person. Um, so they're kind of the opposite of one another. Um, and during their marriage, Mary would still visit Europe a lot, uh, with Preston tagging along, but Solomon stayed in Chicago while, and at one point while visiting some of his friends in Wisconsin, cause Preston kind of traveled all over the U S and the world. He saw his first film, the great train robbery. Um, his mother, Mary was also a playwright and actress who performed in Chicago and France. And I said, Preston did a lot of traveling with his mother, mainly by trains, a lot of trains and their transportation in life. And if, when watching a lot of his movies, I noticed that almost every film has a train sequence <laughs> of some kind. Like characters well, the, are always on the move. One of the characters has a line in um, Palm Beach story about like, uh-huh. tra- going by train is his favorite mode of transportation. Yeah. And it's, it's very weird. It's just like, like Sullivan's travel starts off with a shot of a train. Uh, Sullivan's kind of playing a hobo who's traveling by train a lot. Palm Beach story. There's a big sequence. There's a one, there's one scene in Palm Beach story that was inspired by something that happened to his mom when Claudette Gobert goes to the other train car and then finds out her train car has been disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of her stuff's in it. That apparently happened to his mom <laughs> because she went to go eat dinner on the, on the, on the dining car and then came back to find her car had been detached. I gotta say, his his mom sounds like a Hawksian woman. I, I yeah, no, very much <laughs> so. Yeah, no, you're right. You're very. Tr- it's very true. She's very much like that care, like uh, that archetype. The family again would all travel together across the country with uh, Salma as well, living in multiple cities. At one point, they briefly lived in San Diego. And L. Frank Baum, writer of The Wizard of Oz and the Oz books, was their neighbor for a short period of time. And Preston would play with the with uh, Baum's kids. In 1907, when Sturgis was around eight years old and had just returned from Europe, with uh, just returned from Europe, his parents began having massive fights, and they agreed to separate. His mother told Preston that she would be moving to Paris while Solomon would be staying in Chicago. Preston said he wanted to stay with his father, and that's when Solomon said, I am not your father, revealing to Preston that he was adopted. (laughs) After a big crying fit, Preston said Solomon would become his father again and never ceased being his father. For the rest of Solomon's life, he helped Preston out financially if needed. Solomon would later pass away in 1940 while living in Hollywood because he moved there to be closer to his son. Uh, Preston said he died in his arms uh, when he passed away. Wow. Um, but And it was right when he was getting big. He had just directed, I think, his first movie. or right, right It's the same year he directed his first two movies. Um, his parents had become divorced, and Preston and Mary would be back traveling around Europe. While in, pra- while in Paris, Mary was briefly in a cult uh, or bega- and began having an affair with a cult leader. God, I want a movie of her life. I know, right? By the name of Alist- Alistair Crawley. No way! Yeah. No way! <laughs> she had an affair with Alistair Crowley? Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> and apparently, I think helped she helped him or helped him write his, like magic, whatever his like uh, they say is his magnum opus or whatever, like a piece wow. that he did. Wow. Wow. I'm Learned starstruck. To... <laughs> uh. France, and she met him in Paris, and so France would become a second home for Preston. He would eventually become fluent in French. Um, As he grew older, he began holding several odd jobs. At age 18, he began working as a runner for New York stockbrokers, a job Solomon helped him get. Uh, He then enlisted in the United States Army Air Service a year later. 
Uh, he graduated as lieutenant from Camp Dick in Texas, but never saw action. He returned to New York to work at Destia Emporium, which was owned by Mary's fourth husband. Um, he served in a managing position uh, and helped the mothers and helped his mother's cosmetic ventures, even inventing a successful kiss-proof lipstick. Uh, he spent eight years there doing this, and during this time, he married his first wife, Estelle de Wolf Munge. His first wife. There's. I'm assuming there's going to be a few. There's going to be four. I was about to say I don't know. I don't know how you <laughs> would have a stable family unit after being raised like that. But wow, yeah. wow, what a childhood. I know. Yeah. In 1928, Sturge just got divorced. <laughs> uh, I think they were married for five years. Uh, and that's when he acted in a play on Broadway called Hotbed, a short-lived play. Uh, after that, he wrote his first play called The Guinea Pig, which, went, which ran on Broadway for a, a period of time. His second play, called Strictly Dishonorable, became an important work in his career. Written in only six days, the play would run on Broadway for 16 months and make Preston... Three hundred thousand uh, dollars, today's equivalent four point five million. Yeah, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is when Hollywood came calling. Even after he had three failed plays after that play, um, before his jump to Hollywood, he married another person again by the name of Eleanor Hutton, a rich heiress. I think her grandfather was like the owner of what used what eventually became General Foods. And then also in 1931, his mother passed away from leukemia at the age of 60. Wow. What a life. Yeah. And the Isidore Duncans, there's more stuff to it. Like that's his book when reading it, there's like maybe eight, it's like about 330 page book or whatever. 80 pages are about Hollywood. The rest are about just like growing up uh, and like making his way up to just getting to New York and being a playwright. You know, there's a uh, there's a case to be made that that Scientology would not exist without Aleister Crowley. So maybe Aleister Crowley doesn't inspire Scientology without having an affair with Preston Sturgis's mom. It's all um, yeah, it's all tied up. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so so this is when he moves to Hollywood. Even after the failed plays, after Strictly Dishonorable, he was or- he was offered a staff writing job at Universal Studios by Carl Limley. In 1932, uh, he was more of a junior screenwriter because he had no experience. But because of the success on Broadway, he was paid more, making a thousand dollars a week, which is the equivalent of nineteen thousand yeah. dollars a week today. That's not bad. That's not bad for a junior writer. <laughs> junior yeah. screenwriter. Uh, now, being a screenwriter was very different back then to, to compared to what it is now. Um, even though some practices are still used on the studio level for big budget films. Uh, there wasn't really a lot of single, there wasn't single screenwriters basically. Um, and here's what Preston says about being a writer for the studios in 1930s from his book. He goes, at that time, writers worked in teams like piano movers. It was generally believed by the powers down in front that a man could, a man who could write comedy could not write tragedy. Four writers were considered rock bottom minimum required for a picture. Six writers with the sixth one being a woman to puff up the lighter parts was considered ideal. So, in 1933, Sturgis was offered to write the ninth version of a horror picture made by Universal. That movie was The Invisible Man, based on the novel by H.G. Wells. Uh, was it Sturgis the ni- be- Wait, was, was it the ninth draft or the ninth, ninth time they draft, made? Ninth draft. Oh, okay. ninth, sorry, ninth, ninth draft, after eight other writers had tried to write a script for it, they came to him. 
Uh, Sturgis believed this could be his big break at Universal because he'd only written comedies before this. He spent, I believe, 10 weeks working on an original story, creating, as he said, 180 pages so chilling it would make like a statue like sweat or something. It was like a very like weird kind of uh, thing. He turned his draft and he was then fired shortly after. <laughs> um, his contract had ran out and they didn't want to hire him. Realizing he did not enjoy the bullpen style of writing by studios, Sturgis decided to become a freelance writer so he could write wherever he wanted and then sell his scripts to studios once finished. His first script was called The Power and the Glory, a story about a powerful railroad tycoon who has committed suicide and his, story, his life story is being told after his funeral service. The movie was told through multiple flashbacks by characters giving different perspectives. Does that sound a little familiar there, Thomas? <laughs> that that sounds like uh do we know if, if uh old Mankiewicz uh ever ever saw ever read that script? Allegedly, uh it was a big it was a big influence on Sis and Kane. Yeah. Uh either by Mankiewicz, because I think they were but they were all working at the time, so it became like a big thing of like this influenced Orson Welles or Mankiewicz when writing Sis and Kane. This one's hard to find. It's not available anywhere to stream. Even to rent, I think you have to like buy the DVD of it. Um, so yeah, uh, Sturgis's script is significant for many reasons. Uh, it's essentially the first spec script mm -hmm. really ever written. Sturgis wrote the script on his own time without a deal and then tried selling it to a studio as the script's sole author. He sold the script to Fox for around $17,000, which is about $345,000 today. And he also received an unheard perk in his contract. He would receive a percentage of the box office gross, something that no other writer had received before. Sturgis said this price tag and deal of profit percentage made him several enemies in Hollywood. Um, after the success of The Power and the Glory, Sturgis began writing the script for a movie called The Biography of a Bum. And he hoped it would be his directorial debut after he directed the dialogue of the power and the glory. I don't, it's weird. It's he, he talks about this book of how like he basically directed, cause it stars Spencer Tracy directed Spencer Tracy of like how to deliver the dialogue, but he wasn't the director. Hmm. Um, after hmm. he finished writing it, no one wanted to make it. Um, he spent the next seven years taking writing jobs for studios to fix pictures. Um, one of my favorites or two of my favorites are easy living, which he's credited as the sole writer. It's a screwball comedy starring Gene author. Ar Gene Arthur, sorry. Uh, and it's about a wealthy banker who throws his wife's expensive fur coat off the roof of a building. It lands on the head uh, of a woman walking by, leading everyone to assume that she is his mistress and has access to his millions. There you go. Um, uh, the film be important in the search film Murphy because even though he didn't direct it, there were several actors that would later become famous for being a part of the Sturgis stock players kind of troupe. <laughs> Uh, also, during this time, Sturgis began making $2,000 or $2,500 a week for his work, making him one of the highest paid writers in Hollywood at that time. Even with that financial success, Sturgis began, became upset with how directors handled the scripts. He wanted to make the jump to directing, and he went to the production chief of Paramount Studios in 1939, and he said he would sell him his script, The Biography of a Bum, for a dollar if they allowed him to direct the movie himself. Paramount agreed, but up the price to ten dollars because it felt more legal. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, the, bio the biography of a bum would turn to the great McGinty, making it becoming Sturge's first directorial effort, making him the first Hollywood screenwriter to become a director after gaining notoriety as a writer first. Uh, 
a brief story about that. I think it's actually one of his lesser movies, but it's the only film that won him an Oscar. Um, uh, it's told through flashbacks. It tells the story again. He does a lot of this. There's a lot of messing with time in his films, yeah. Yeah. uh, which is very interesting. Either there's time jumps or there's flashbacks or there's flash forwards, whatever. Um, but this one tells the story of a man named McGinty, who is a bartender in a banana Republic. And he tells this man who's about to get in trouble. Like he's, I think about to pull a gun to steal some money. McGinty stops him and starts telling him his life story. And you find out that he, was from like doesn't say New York, but kind of like a New York surrogate. Uh, started off as like a, a hoodlum who made money working for a crooked political boss, and he rises from being this like low level guy to an alderman, and then his urge to become the mayor of the city, and then eventually becomes the governor. And it's this very kind of political satire of just it's interesting with Sturgis because he's tackling issues that today seem very relevant. Um, but at the time, maybe not, because it comes out a year after Mr. Smith goes to Washington, a film about like one man can change government and do all these things. And then a year later, he does an opposite kind of like negative look of politics and mm-hmm. politicians uh, and how like the one guy who does stand up ends up like winding up in a bar and banana in some like random Latin America country because he couldn't be honest in his job. Um, so he makes that movie, wins an Oscar. He's like, I'm afraid if I don't strike real quick with another movie, I'm not going to be able to direct again. Uh, so he directs a movie called Christmas in July, uh, which was based on an unproduced play of his starring Dick Powell, uh, in one huh? of his kind of comedy movies. Old fr- friend of the podcast. Oh, friend of the podcast, Dick Powell. It's like an hour and eight minutes. It's very short. It's okay. It's, it's also dealing with kind of this. I would like to rewatch it again after rewatching all these films I just watched. Um, but it's like he Dick Powell's character is told that he won some sort of like contest. So he goes out and starts spending all this money, but you find out later that the people just pull a prank on him and he didn't actually win the money. But like is he it, made all these life is changes. Is it a Christmas movie though? It's not. Okay. All right. That's a very, you know, we, that's a question it's, we've yeah. tackled often on this podcast. I just, wanna... I, 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 I don't remember Christmas. I mean, made Christmas adjacent. Um, but because it is, t- it does pl- take place in July, um, and like the poster is like a Christmas themed poster. Like it's like Dick Powell and the female lead, who's I'm I'm drawing a blank on. It's in like their faces in between like a wreath, basically on the poster. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, 1940, he gets into. I think he starts hitting his stride, and this is when we'll kind of delve deeper into these his movies here. But in 1940, 1941, after releasing two movies in 1940, Sturgis released two of his biggest films. And two of his most popular films of all time, and that's the Lady Eve and Sullivan's Travels. But first, let's dive into Lady Eve real quick. So, Thomas, what is the Lady Eve about? The Lady Eve, just to start off, it's probably my yeah. favorite of his of his works. I agree. It's uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda, fantastic pairing. Um, but Henry Fonda is playing a wealthy heir to a an ale fortune. His family brews ale, not beer. Yeah. Ale. But ale. Yeah. yeah there's a difference uh, but he doesn't care he doesn't care about ale <laughs> he doesn't care what the difference is. yeah yeah but he just wants he's you to know a, there uh, is a difference yeah he's a he studies snakes he's a yeah herpa herpetologist i don't know herpa something. <laughs> um, he's a snake he's a snake uh ex- ex- expert that's what he is yeah so we join him he's leaving after being in like uh, south america for a year yeah 
and he's he's got some rare snakes that he discovered and he's he's hopping on board this luxury steamer that's coming by to go back to the states and as he gets onto the steamer we're introduced to barbara stanwick's character who is a grifter she and her father and their friend board these luxury steamers to hustle rich people at cards and that's their that's their way of of living as they get on cruise ships they find a, a mark and they they spend the like you know week or however however long you're on a, this ship kind of building them up until they can really hit them hard and, and and hustle them out of a lot of money so they've decided that that henry fonda is their new target and so barbara sandwich sets out to kind of seduce him in a way that that they can then bring him to the card table and take all of his money but in the meantime she falls in love with him and decides that that and he falls in love with her and she decides she's going to come clean to him she's going to give up hustling and they're going to get married but he finds out that she's a grifter before she has a chance to tell him he rebukes her for it and so then she decides she's going to get even she's going to which they never say this like out loud in the movie but it seems like what her the lesson she's going to teach him is that that he wants like he wants a proper lady and he thinks she's not yeah. a proper lady because she's, and she's a like, I'm going to so, show you, I can be a proper lady. And I'm, I'm going to show you. you and, and I'm going to show you that proper ladies aren't all they are cracked up to be. Cause what she essentially yeah. does is becomes the lady Eve, uh, yeah. goes to his house, not disguised at all, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> she, he's like, aren't you she just this woman a, I was just... briefly engaged to? And she's like, I don't, I guess not. Uh, we must look no, like, okay. Because she has a British accent, and that's the only change she has. And she's just yeah. like, oh, it's no. probably the best way to pull it off. You know, if he no, was yeah. like, you're wearing a wig, I know you. But uh, but she shows up. She like, just no plays dumb. Whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> um, seduces him again. Uh, yeah. Gets married to him, and then in, that's the whole movie. Time another. Don't... <laughs> no spoiling. No spoiling from there. I mean, you can. I mean, if you. I mean, it's you're about to the whole movie. I don't know. If we usually don't do that, but it's fine if you want to. It's I, on TCM. I, I, I want to touch on. Okay, okay. I want to touch ahead. on how, you know, we've spent so much time on the Hayes Code this month, and and Sturgis just goes like an extra step further. <laughs> it's still it's still subtext, but um, it's very close to text text. But um, yeah, she she ultimately plays this 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 trick on him. We won't go through the whole movie, but uh, basically the lesson she wants to teach him is that even though she's pretending to be this high society proper lady, you know, proper ladies can can uh be bad girls too yeah yeah can be yeah somewhat corrupt in some way yeah she wants to kind of shock him by by marrying this the the lady eve and and showing him that you know as a as a grifter she was still a better wife for him than than the lady eve would be yeah he for one this is his only i think real like only movie that i think really has two mega stars in it Mm -hmm. with stanwick and fonda like the next one might be like Palm Beach Story Sullivan's Travels, but like John McRae isn't a huge star to me. Like I just know him like from these movies, but like Fonda and Stanwick, it's the big one two punch of yeah, them. Yeah, both people who were very big then and would I feel like go on to be even bigger. Like incredibly yeah. long lasting careers for both of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah, I mean Stanwick ends up doing T V in the fifties and sixties. Uh Fonda still I mean Hell, gets nominated for an Oscar. Does he win for On Golden Pond in like the 80s? He mm-hmm. gets nominated, I remember. Well, and, and uh, Sandwick was nominated for the Thornbirds, right? I believe so. 
but yeah, because I think she ended up getting like three or four Oscar nominations. I think won some Emmy, like won Emmys. Um, but yeah, like they had big careers for a long time, um, and they just have great chemistry together. Yeah, like it's fantastic. I mean, all this, like, I mean, I mean, all the scenes, but like the scene, the two scenes that pop out are like when she, the one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when she's like watching all the women in the mm-hmm. like the the like like she's like basically judging them like and kind of giving her perspective of what Fonda might be thinking of every woman that passes him by because they're all trying to get his attention in some way yeah yeah and i think it's i think that's a great scene to establish you know because she's a con she's a con man yeah yeah and that that scene is like and all these women who are trying she reads people yeah yeah all these women that are currently trying to catch henry fonda's eye to seduce him to get to his money are doing the are, are amateur con con women and she's she's sitting there watching them all and, and she knows every single play that they're yeah. making like she and before they even go for it she's like this this woman is going to go drop her napkin I know all these things and and these are all amateurs and I'm the professional. Uh, it's a great it's a great scene to introduce her, I think. Look at that girl over to his left. Look over to your left bookworm. There's a girl pining for you. A little further. Just a little further. There. Wasn't that worth looking for? See those nice store teeth all beaming at you. Well, she recognizes you. She's up. She's down. She can't make up her mind. She's up again. She recognizes you. She's coming over to speak to you. The suspense is killing me. Why, for heaven's sake, aren't you fuzzy old hammer I went to manual training school with in Louisville? Oh, you're not? Well, you certainly look exactly like him. It's certainly a remarkable resemblance. But if you're not going to ask me to sit down, I suppose you're not going to ask me to sit down. I'm very sorry. I certainly hope I haven't caused you any embarrassment, you so-and-so. I wonder if my tie's on straight. I certainly upset them, don't I? Now, who else is after me? Ah, the lady champion wrestler. Wouldn't she make a houseful? Oh, you don't like her either. Well, what are you going to do about it? Oh, you just can't stand it anymore. You're leaving. These women don't give you a moment's peace, do they? Well, go ahead. Go sulk in your cabin. Go soak your head and see if I care. And then she just trips him up. And that's Mm -hmm. how they meet. And then she's like, oh, like, you broke my heel. You have to go back to my room to help me put on put a new shoe back on yeah speaking of (laughs) speaking of the Hayes code that scene i was like whoa what i had to check what year it was i was like how far are we going here (laughs) yeah she she makes him like put her 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 shoe back on and she's just got her her leg right up in front of his face and i i was like whoa 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 there was yeah there was a line i think let me see if i can find it because ebert talked about in his review of lady e where he's just like one inch farther and you had like an issue or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like if he if he was like one inch closer to her, there would be like a a, a haze code thing coming in saying, "Hey, we got to change this." And then there's and then after that, you have the scene of like when they're in bed together, yeah. and it's like this long three and a half minute scene, all in this like close up shot of them two, and she's essentially just like seducing him, is what it is. And it's like, does it always have to be about snakes? Is kind of the the thing. He's like, I don't know, I just like snakes. Yeah, they've got that great kind of back and forth about who their ideal person would be. Yeah. And she's got that line where she like describes her ideal man and, and he's like, Oh, well, you ought to be able to find that and she's like, Oh, that's not who I would want to marry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess we all have one. What does yours look like? He's a little short guy with lots of money. Why short? What does it matter if he's rich? It's so he'll look up to me, so I'll be his ideal. That's a funny kind of reasoning. Look whose reasoning. 
And when he takes me out to dinner, he'll never add up the check, and he won't smoke greasy cigars or use grease on his hair. And... Oh, yes, he, he won't do card tricks. Oh. Oh, it's not that I mind your doing card tricks, Hopsy. It's just that you naturally wouldn't want your ideal to do card tricks. I shouldn't think that kind of ideal was so difficult to find. Oh, he isn't. That's why he's my ideal. What's the sense of having one if you can't ever find him? Mine is a practical idea. You can find two or three of them in every barbershop getting the works. Oh, why don't you marry one of them? Why should I marry anybody that looked like that? When I marry, it's going to be somebody I've never seen before. I mean, I won't know what he looks like or where he'll come from or what he'll be. I want him to sort of... Take me by surprise. And then one more thing to go on the whole, like, satirizing love aspect of screwball comedy. I think the scene that does it the most, that, that, that if you could put screwball comedy in one scene, it might be this scene. And that's when, when she's Lady Eve and they're on the horses. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching, I was like, is that horse supposed to be doing that? And I can't tell if this is on purpose. And they're having this very romantic moment and the horse is next to them just keeps like hitting their heads and interrupting them. Mm-hmm. And they just keep going. Like he isn't there. Is the other like funny looking part. at it and then going back to, <laughs> and, and you know, it's, it's funny because he keeps getting interrupted, but then the, also the humor of that scene is it's, you know, he's, he's using this pickup line on her that he already used. Oh, he, he doesn't realize he's speaking to the same person. And she, yeah, yeah. she's like, yeah, this guy just has the same lines. <laughs> It's like, well, and also like the the horse. I think when when he touched her the first time, she goes, "Oh, stop it!" And she, he goes, oh, "I'm sorry. Oh, I thought you were the horse." <laughs> like it's like, <laughs> it's just like so. It's it's when you first see it, it feels like it's an accident. The horse is doing that, and they just said, "Screw it, we can't do any other takes." Mm-hmm. But it's a very purposeful thing because it's this very romantic moment. This kind of these two characters coming together, and this horse just keeps hitting their heads and interrupting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it goes to even like a different shot to like drive the point home. Like, no, we're, we're going to ruin this moment here. Like, let's not go forward with it. But no, yeah, I agree. I think this is his best film. He did. Um, I think the chemistry is great. I think the writing is on point. Um, it's also the one I know, even the weird, like the whole, she becomes the lady Eve type thing. I feel like it's one, the one, movie he did that it doesn't have this like outlandish like twist does that make sense like like that's a it's outlandish to an extent but compared to the other ones that we're going to dive into this is like the like there's no like pull the wool out or like pull you pull the rug out from under you in the final third act of like oh no don't forget about this like like, don't worry about this thing because what's so crazy with Preston Sturgis he made eight movies in five years and like about seven are good are good or great <laughs> um there's one we'll, we'll I'll talk about later of kind of why it's not really considered in the canon but like eight films in five years is kind of insane mm-hmm. um and to make some that are just like some are considered some of the greatest american comedies of all time um is it's very prolific um so he does lady eve and he follows us up with sullivan's travels and Selvin's Travels is about this uh, film director, this comedy film director uh, by the name of John L. Sullivan. And he wants to make this serious drama 
about America, about the depression, about what's going on in the world. And it's going to be based on a novel called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he goes, in order to find out more about the like America today, I'm going to like go out in the world as a hobo and try to make my way like traveling around the country uh, and learning about what the real people are dealing with and all the troubles and what's going through their mind. Uh, and through like kind of a slew, it's a very, I mean, it's a great conversation about class in this movie. Mm-hmm. I feel of like one of, when I was rewatching it today. And one of my favorite scenes is like when it gets troubled, when he gets into real trouble at first, it gets, it gets d- darker at, as the movie goes on, but as he gets into trouble at first, he goes, Oh wait, I'm in Vegas. Oh, my friends are here with all the stuff or whatever. Like they've been following me here or like, Oh, I'm back in LA. Oh my gosh, get my car from my mansion and go get, go have a great breakfast. And he's like trying to be like a real American, like poor American person. And he can never really do that fully until something forces him to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it becomes like a dark, kind of a dark movie. It's a weird movie because it's a comedy but it's not funny. Th- it's not like funny on the surface, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's not a laugh out loud comedy to me in a lot of aspects, but it's an interesting reaction because uh, Sturgis felt that a lot of filmmakers at the time were taking everything too seriously and mm-hmm. no one was trying to be funny. And even the co- comedians were trying to like make serious movies. And Selvin's Travels is kind of like making fun of yeah. that. But you can see how where this is the main film I knew of Sturgis, you can see how the rest of these movies would be a shock to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very coming, much so. Coming from from that, you know, when you go from that to Palm Beach Story, it's it's a little it's it, the the contrast is a little shocking. Yeah. Like Palm Beach Story, I almost like I don't I almost want to reveal the twist of it, but I cuz it's so crazy. I I do have to say with Palm Beach Story, I and I'd never do this. I never do this in movies, but I had to Google what just <laughs> happened in the beginning of Palm Beach Story because I was like, "Am I supposed to know what's happening right now?" And, and everybody was like, and "Luckily, like I found a message for it, and, and someone had, had had written that, and somebody was like, just wait till the end.'" And I was like, "Okay, okay, I'll wait." But <laughs> I was still like, "The the he, he's a fan of these like cold opens." Um, yeah, he is. And and. This one like has a really wild cold open, and then he like doesn't address it again at all until the very end, end of the movie. End of the movie, and then kind of doesn't address it. Um, but we'll get into Palm Beach story. Get back to Selvin's travel. It also has a a a cold open of like two men fighting on top of a train. It's like fast moving train at night, and they fall into the water. And it, you realize that it's a movie that's been made, and Sullivan's share, showing it to um, uh, the studio executives or whatever. Um, he's like, oh, it's a big hit. It's talking about communism and going against communists and all this stuff. He's like, I want to make a movie like this. But uh, the big part about Selvin's Travels, the big thing to me is is Veronica Lake in the movie. Um, I think she's the big standout. And I think uh, Sturgis had to fight to get her in the movie because I don't think she'd been in that much at that point. I think she was only like 19 years old. What they lock you out of your room for? Did I ask you any questions? I'm sorry. It's all right. You been in Hollywood long? Long enough. Trying to crash the movies or something? Something like that. I guess that's pretty hard to do, huh? I guess so. I never got close enough to find out. Oh, sorry. Say, who's being sorry for who? Am I buying you the eggs or are you buying me the eggs? I'd just like to repay you for them. All right. Give me a letter of introduction to Lubitsch. I might be able to do that, too. Who's Lubitsch? Drink your coffee. Cognac? 
What'd you say? I said, can you act? Sure, I can act. Would you like me to give you a recitation? Go ahead. Skip it. My next act will be an impersonation of a young lady going home on the thumb. In that outfit? How about your own outfit? Oh, I mean, haven't you got a car? No, have you? No, but... Then don't get ritzy. And I'll tell you some other things I haven't got. I haven't got a yacht or a pearl necklace or a fur coat or a country seat or even a winter seat. I could use a new girdle, too. I wish I could give you some of the things you need. <laughs> you wouldn't be trying to lead me astray, would you? You know, the nice thing about buying food for a man is that you don't have to laugh at his jokes. So, yeah, I, I think this is it's 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 not a laugh out loud comedy to me, but all of his like turns of phrases and his, his his language is very present in this movie. And I can see how people would feel like the Coens would gravitate towards it because it is a good it is an interesting blend of comedy and drama but never not always like trying to uh hit you over the head with the dra dramatic aspects of the film yeah i mean you can definitely see it's it's i i you know i i knew about the connection between O'Brother brother Arthur, but i never really thought of of the coens as as being as interested in Preston Sturgis, you know probably also mm -hmm. because i didn't have as much knowledge about him but you can definitely yeah. see his influence in the way he would make a film like this and then go into something just like full-on slapstick you know the coens are the same way and some people some yeah. people get you know i feel like every time the coens put out like a big slapstick movie people are like what is this and they forget that you know every every like third or fourth movie that they do they like to do something like that yeah <laughs> yeah like not everything's no country for old men or miller's crossing yeah you gotta have a burn like after reading every once in a while which I love. I adore that movie. You gotta have a Hell Caesar. You gotta have an intolerable cruelty. That's not. I'm sorry. That's not a good movie. I apologize. <laughs> um, that one I can't stand by. Uh, but like, or like, you do Blood Simple and you're raising Arizona. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, exactly. and some of their, and, and a lot of their comedies to go off that are very screwball comedy. Like they're like mm -hmm. raising Arizona is a screwball comedy. Um, I think Intolerable Cruelty you can as screwball comedy. Yeah. Hell Caesar definitely. I mean, I think you could even make a case for for Burn After Reading in the way it kind of skewers the bureaucracy. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's a lot about not necessarily class, but like the people who are in power are idiots. <laughs> yeah, that's a very Preston Sturgis thing, by the way. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm honestly I'm gonna read this real quick because I talked about earlier. Because again, with a with a lot of Sturgis's movies, he he does try to show representation in america in some way it's not just all i mean it's still it's still hollywood and la at this point so it's mostly predominantly white characters but in sullivan's travels i said there was a sequence of a southern black church in it and mm -hmm. um uh, apparently when that came out sturgis got out there was a letter sent by the secretary of the naacp said i want to congratulate congratulate and thank you for the church sequence in sullivan's travels this is one of the most moving scenes I've seen in a moving picture for a long time. And when they get here, I'm going to ask you once more, neither by word, nor by action, nor by look, but to make a guest feel unwelcome, nor draw away from them, or act high tone. For we is all equal in the sight of God. Amen. And he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Yes. And the chain shall be struck from them. And the lame shall leap. And the blind shall see. And glory in the coming of the Lord. 
now let's give our guests a little welcome. that pop up in his movies and yeah. i guess a little bit the transition the palm beach story it's still a comic role but you have like the french character that mary astor brings mm-hmm. which by the way for palm beach story i'll let uh, thomas tell you what the plot is but mary astor to me is phenomenal in that film she's uh, having a blast you can tell she's, she's a good great time. i forgot how good she was in this movie like uh, when she because she comes in the movie very late Mm-hmm. and she steals almost every scene she's in and like mary astor i know like from maltese falcon which is a very serious like femme fatale mm-hmm. and she's just like coming in with the line like going a mile a minute with her lines not letting anyone interrupt her it's she's fantastic but thomas what is the palm beach story about yeah so the palm beach story is a we, we're opening to a cold open of a couple getting married Stephen mccray and claudette colbert um joel, joel mccray joel mccray not stephen mccray he w- was not born yet um <laughs> uh joel mccray and claudette colbert you know joel mccray coming off of sullivan's travels claudette colbert mm-hmm. already already done it happened one night at this point yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah yeah that was 30 that was 34 yeah, yeah. oh yeah for sure <laughs> um they're a married couple and then we we jump forward a couple of years we've got this great title card and it says they lived happily ever after and then we zoom out and it says or did they <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a couple of years later they're broke he's an inventor they're about to get evicted and she decides she's she gets a little bit of money from the sausage king <laughs> yeah <laughs> and she decides uh um, just a great a great side character who can't hear it's yeah wonderful uh, she decides that she's going to leave him and yeah. kind of set out on, on her own and she has kind of a road adventure there's there's a very chaotic uh couple of scenes on a train car with a gun jesus club. yeah <laughs> and and while she's there she meets a man who is very kind and, and kind of takes her in and, and decides he's going to take care of her come to find out he's the richest man in, in america yeah and, john Hack- hackensacker the third is his yeah. name john hackensacker and so Joel McRae comes to find her to win her back. And she says, you know what? Let's, let's play this. Let's see if we can get enough money out. Like if we have money, maybe we'll be happy. So let's see if we can get money out of this guy. And then yeah. maybe we can get back together and be happy. So yeah. he pretends to be her brother. And the two of them uh, go to live with this rich guy and his, and his eccentric uh, sister who, yeah and we get a get a little but, love rectangle going on yeah with with mary but yeah mary astor plays the uh the sister of the 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 billionaire probably uh and then rudy valley mm-hmm. famous singer at this point kind of crooner um who was big at this point i think it's his first movie i think no 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 he'd been more it's his like first like starring role i believe it mm. was kind of like a big no maybe it wasn't Anyway, I just know Star just took a risk on him because, again, like similar to Veronica Lake, uh, uh, he tried to take risk on these kind of lesser known people 
and it kind of got pushback from the studio, specifically this producer by the name of uh, Buddy De Silva, uh, did not like that Sturgis liked using unrecognizable actors in his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Rudy Valley one was a risk, and Rudy Valley is kind of poking fun at his image. Yeah, like, well, this, it makes yeah. him. It- it plays him very against type. It makes him kind yeah. of a nerd. Uh, it does very much so. But, but yeah, it's, it's the scene when like, he's like on the, he's like singing, uh, outside her, uh, her room at one point mm-hmm. towards the end of the film. And like, he doesn't know how to read the, he, he keeps like fumbling with the, the music or whatever that he's reading. This is where it gets odd for Sturgis Palm beach, Palm beach stories. is just an odd, like wacky, movie like the train sequence when there's a huge like all these gun-toting guys start shooting off stuff <laughs> and like basically tear up the train to a point where the conductor's like screw it we're we're detaching their car and leaving them here because they're insane mm-hmm. and it's kind it's just so and they have like their hounds they're like tr- they're trying to find Claudette colbert because she's got because she got in with them and that she was their guest and she went missing because she ran away from them for how crazy they were. And they're chasing after her on the train. Like it's a dog, like it's a, a, like a a hunt out in the woods or whatever. It's, it's insane. His his films are very sequenced. I feel like, you know, the lady Eve is, has such a hard divide between the first half and the second half. Second half. Yeah. yeah. it's, 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 and, and, uh, you know, Sullivan's Travels is kind of these little these little pictures of of his adventures, and this one is is the same way. That that the the sequence with the gun club is its own story. Like it has yeah. like a full plot <laughs> to it, and then and then it leads into as as that one finishes, it leads into her romance with Rudy Valley. Yeah, uh, but they don't really like overlap. They're all just kind of separate. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. He's very segmented in his storytelling. I mean, the first yeah, the first sequence is kind of the the like the the falling of their the failing of their marriage, and the the hot dog sausage king, mm-hmm. uh, who is just what's his name? His name his, his his literal character name is Weenie King. Yeah, that's the character name he I gives. I love there's there's I think my favorite line is there's he, when he's telling Joel McRae to to fly down and 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 stop her. And he says something about, like, do you have money for a plane ticket? And Joel McRae says, no, I'm not in the sausage business. And he goes, oh, you are too? It's a it's a great business. Because <laughs> <laughs> the whole bit is they can't hear people when they're mm-hmm. talking to him. And it's just, one of my favorite lines too is when he goes like, oh, uh, I'm the sausage bit business. Make hot dogs. Never eat them. They're not good for you. Like, he's just <laughs> like, he's, <laughs> he's just so like in his own world. I said, it isn't really your business. I'm in the sausage business. Don't worry about me. This will be a hot one on the wife. She's down there poking a snoot in everybody's business. Nagged on by that varmint. How much do you need? Don't be silly. Will 500 cover it? Please don't talk nonsense. I can't hear you. You're mumbling again. You shouldn't mumble with such a lovely voice. I wouldn't do this for everybody. Look, this joke has gone far enough. You say that ain't enough? Well, how much do you need? You're just embarrassing me. That's all right. Don't mention it. It's a privilege to do a favor for such a beautiful lady. It makes me feel young again. There. Well, how do you suppose it makes me feel? I haven't seen anything like this for so long. If you're talking about the money, forget it. I'm cheesy with money. I'm the weenie king. Invented the Texas weenie. Lay off of them, you live longer. Here, buy yourself a new dress, too. And a new hat. You're a fine girl. So long. And yeah, and, and I think it's like Joel McRae is like trying to like build like a 
That's wild. Yeah, yeah, his idea. He's trying to build an airport on top of a city, like a, a, yeah. a see-through landing pad. Yeah. On top of New York, I'm assuming. So the yeah. planes can just land over the city. Yeah, that was that it's- was crazy. I was like, is this a sci-fi movie now or what? <laughs> and and John D. Hackenthaler's like, you know, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I should invest in this. Uh- I don't like you a lot, but this airport will be a, a good <laughs> distraction. Good distraction from my heartbreak. I want to see. I want to see a movie. I'm, I'm gonna pitch you a movie where. Okay. What's John D. Hackensacker? Was that his name? Yeah, John D. Hackensacker. Yeah, Hackensacker. He He's has got some. Crazy he has some names. great names. He does, and we'll get in that in Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see Rudy Valley and and the guy from uh, the guy from Some Like It Hot. The, the be just be two. Uh, oh heirs. yeah, the, yeah, be yeah. Two billionaires having some fun with each other, just like having fun, you know, just going out, meeting some people, having having a good old time. Yeah, I Palm Beach story again. The twist. Any, I, I, I don't know how. I, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it for you guys if you do go watch Palm Beach story because I don't want you to be like like uh, spoiled with this ending. But think of what it could be. It's not that. Like it's. <laughs> Just know if you're insanely confused at the cold open, you're 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 meant to be, and it will eventually be. get there. It just won't mention it again until, <laughs> until they reveal it to you. Until the ending of the movie, when they're like, "Oh, that's a whole other story." <laughs> this is the Princess Chantamelia, my brother, Captain McClue. What? Captain, we should have met sooner. And if I'd seen you around, we would have. This is my brother, Captain Hackensacker, Captain McClue. That's an odd name. Yes, isn't it? How do you do, Captain? I'm not a captain. That's my sister's joke because I own a yacht. It's my sister's joke because I don't own one. <laughs> Very glad to meet you. Your sister didn't tell me she had a brother here. No, I just dropped over. Well, you're and... staying with us, of course. No, no, we wouldn't want inconvenience. You would go to a hotel. Oh, no, but oh, Matt... inconvenience is bumble puppy. We practically run a hotel anyway. This will give the servants some exercise. I won't take no for an answer. Your brother's a very fine-looking man. You know, you look exactly alike. <laughs> I suppose he's married. No, no, he's entirely free. You don't tell me. Now, look, don't pay any attention to her, Captain. Her bark is worse than a bite. That's what you think. Oh, dear, I wish I hadn't brought Toto along today. Somebody think of an errand to send him on. Hello. Toto, this is Captain McGlue. I'm going to see more of him and less of you from now on. Hello. Uh, listen carefully, dear. I left my handkerchief, mouchoir, taschentuf, on the yacht. You go fetch it, see? Neats. Yitz, Toto. Neats. It'll be neats to you, Toto. Ah. And now, Captain, you may take my arm. Uh, what did you say you were captain of? I didn't say a word about it. But uh, so he does Palm Beach Story. It's a it's a hit, and then he does the Miracle of Morgan's Creek, and the Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Uh is a mo- one of the, the movie one of the few movies I've seen in this era and I go how did this get made yeah like this, literally this pushes the limits of the Hayes code in a way I we thought I've never this seen month, <laughs> this is how far we've come this month earlier this month I said the scene when they're talking about whether or not uh Tracy had sex yeah. was one of the wildest scenes I've seen from that period this this is yeah she absolutely did like and everyone in the town knows it so the premise of the miracle of Morgan's Creek uh, it stars Eddie Bracken and Betty Hutton. Uh, Eddie Bra- or uh, Eddie Bracken plays Norval Jones, and Betty Hutton plays Trudy Cockenlocker. <laughs> <laughs> that is her name. Uh, and Trudy is a young young girl in the small Midwestern town. It's in the middle of World War II, 
and uh, uh, her father is worried she's gonna like go off and marry some soldier because she goes off to all these like kind of like going out farewell parties for soldiers who are leaving town. It's a big thing in this era in the 1940s. Um, and usually it'd be like soldiers would try to hook up with young women who were there before they went off uh, to have fun. So she goes off this one night. She she kind of gets her nerdy friend who loves her, Norval Jones, has him take her out, leaves him at the movie theater so she can go to this wild party with all the soldiers. She shows back up drunk at like 8 a.m. in the morning the next day. Norval Jones has slept at the movie theater. And what you find out is that she married one of these soldiers and is possibly pregnant. She can't remember which one. Can't remember which person it was. She believes his name was Rats and Watsker or something. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, it has a Z in it. Rat Ratsky Watsky is the name. Ratsky Watsky. Yeah, it's I don't know how it got made. Like literally, I just it's this like he, he, it's almost like a math problem of we have to put these specific pieces together to make it to where the Hayes code doesn't do it. Like doesn't like flag us. So it's the, she has to mysteriously marry the soldier so she can have sex and become pregnant. Mm-hmm. And then that's the plot of the movie. Cause it was just, she had sex and got pregnant. Couldn't do that. Yeah. No. Um, but it's still dealing with the same issues of if she's yeah, not that's married. Why I, I kind of love in the movie. It is. It's like, it is as, it's treated as scandalous in this movie that she got married as it is that she's pregnant. <laughs> Go ahead. What were your thoughts on it? What were your thoughts on it when you saw it today? It's, Cause you saw it's it over the top. It is. It is wild. The, the comedy, like I was saying earlier that Peter Bogdanovich says that, that no one, no one goes too over the top. I think this movie does just kind of like everyone's constantly pratfalling just all the time. Yeah. William Demerst, who's plays uh, her Trudy's father is just like, does, does like, Full on, like kicks up into the air mm-hmm. to fall flat on his back. When they have this extended sequence, where you know it's it's one of those things. I, it's interesting. This is this is what this episode has really kind of challenged my idea of of what how slapstick a screwball comedy can get because we've talked a lot about kind of the slapstick nature of it. Mm-hmm. But I've I've still always thought of a screwball comedy as being centered on this kind of romance aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, and wordplay in a way, like wordplay yeah. with romance. Yeah, and this movie is just kind of like, nope. <laughs> like less than halfway through the film, they're like, okay, they're in love. No, 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 yeah. like wordplay, no witty banter. They're in love. The rest of this movie is going to be slapstick. Uh, yeah, about what kind of situations they can get themselves into. There's this extended sequence where uh, her father is trying to break Nerval out of prison, and Nerval's so good natured that he's just like can't figure out that her dad's trying to help him break out of prison and it is uh it's it just goes on and on <laughs> i'm all right just knock the wind out of me only i ain't gonna do any running for the next hour or so not if you give me a million dollars you get me yes sir and my gun is way over there someplace i'm defenseless i'll go get it for you All right, you got me, pal. Don't shoot. I know when I'm late. Just lock me in the jail. The key is in the door. No, 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 Mr. Conner. Shut up. I know you're going to escape, but I can't help it. I can't do anything about it. My car's right down in front of my house, and if you need any gas, there's a can with five gallons in my woodshed. 
But you wouldn't take that from me, would you, pal? Of course I wouldn't, Mr. Kakanaki. Maybe I can make things clear and normal. This is the one where, because of all the issues with like the co- like the codes and everything, uh, he started the movie with only like ten pages of script, and so he would write, he would shoot during the day and write at night. So the movie was called Miracle of Morgan's Creek. As they were shooting, he didn't know what the miracle was going to be. Was gonna be. <laughs> They just started making the movie. And he was just like, I'll figure it out. Um, but the one thing I want to bring up in this movie, because it comes up in this movie the most. And then it, it follows it up with Hail the Conquering Hero, where he kind of masters it. Is he the first one to really do a walk and talk, I wonder? Because there are scenes in this movie where Eddie Bracken and Betty Hutton mm-hmm. are like walking multiple blocks of the set of this like small Midwestern town. With no cuts. Yeah. And I read... Let me get what I read. Uh, the long tracking shots of Betty Hutton, Eddie Bracken, uh, delivering pages of dialogue while walking for five minutes down several blocks of town streets were extremely complex to film for that era. Cameras were placed on tracks and pulled backwards by six crew members. The sound crew also walked backwards with handheld boom microphones while other assistants maneuvered 300 yards of cable, cable lights, and reflectors. Um, they shot more than 11,000 feet of film before they got the desi- the desired 40 feet they needed for the scene. Four, wow. 400 feet they needed, sorry, 400 feet for what they needed the scene. So, like, he would shoot long, like, long scenes, long, long pages of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like, he could shoot 11 pages in, like, one scene, basically, if he wanted to. And their scenes, like, when, when Betty Hutton, Trudy, is revealing to Norval that she's pre- she's married and might be pregnant when they're it's like a it's like long scenes down like the city sidewalks and i was just like oh is this is this where sorkin gets it from like it's a weird like there's a weird thing where it's it's similar things where like i wonder I, i'm not saying he did but like there's dna from sorkin's walk and talks to sturgis's walk and talks in the 40s i am in a lot of trouble norval they didn't call off that military dance papa just called it off as far as i was concerned oh he did well he probably had pretty good reasons then that's what parents are for to listen to their advice so i was always miss losing my parents so much. i know norval but he didn't have a good reason he's just old-fashioned soldiers aren't like they used to be when he was a soldier you know all in france and like that oh aren't they of course they're not they're fine clean young boys from good homes and we can't send them off maybe to be killed and rockets red glare bombs bursting in air without anybody to say goodbye to them can we they probably got their families well, even if they have they don't have girls and dancing and how about those who haven't got any families? How about the orphans? Who says goodbye to them? You ought to know about them. The superintendent probably comes down from the asylum for old times' sake. Norval, I think you're perfectly heartless. I just hope you get into the army someday, and the last thing that happens to you, the last thing you get before you sail away, the last thing you have to treasure while fighting beneath foreign skies is a kiss from the superintendent. Well, what do you want me to say? I want you to say, Trudy, it's your bounden duty to say goodbye to our boys, to dance with them, to give them something to remember, something to fight for. I won't take no for an answer. So I'll drop you off at the church basement, take in a movie, then pick you up and take you home like a chivalrous gentleman so you won't get in wrong with Papa. That's what I want you to say. With Miracle of Morgan's Creek, it was a success, but there was pushback from many people. So he started having difficulties with the studio during this time. Miracle of Morgan's Creek was filmed 
1942. It was not released until 1944. Mm. It stayed on the shelves for two years. Uh, I think because he was making so many movies at such a almost alarming rate in a way, <laughs> because it was how fast he was making them. Paramount decided to hold these movies and keep them on the shelves because he was so popular. They're like, we're going to hold it until we need a Preston Sturgis movie. And the studio also, again, became upset with his use of bit actors and large supporting roles. Um, they didn't like the way he challenged the censors and what he did. And for the next three films from Miracle of Morgan's Creek to The Great Moment, Paramount began becoming heavily involved in the editing process of his films. His next movie, Hail the Conquering Hero, feels like a almost a follow it's a follow-up to Miracles of Morgan Miracle of Morgan's Creek because it's also taking on its view of it, it's continuing his view of military in a way. Like if like I, I forgot to mention this, but like for Miracle of Morgan's Creek and with Hell the Conquering Hero, the War Department got involved and had to watch these movies and critique them. Because they didn't like the way soldiers yeah, were portrayed. Morgan's Creek is not a is not a great depiction of of our our, our boys and because basically <laughs> they're saying no. they basically it's like kind of painting the portrait like they go sleep with these random women in town and then go off to war and just forget about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the War Department's like, hey, we don't like the way you're painting the picture of soldiers in this movie. And so with Hell Conquering Hero, it's again, it's kind of continuing that view of um, of um, like um, what it is to be an American in this town ta- and this in this world. So Hell Conquering Hero also stars Eddie Bracken as Woodrow Lafayette Pershing Truesmith is his name. <laughs> uh, like his war hero father who was killed in action during World War Two, uh, Woodrow leaves his small town to join the Marines during World War or World War One. His father died, joins the Marines in World War Two. But when he's given a medical discharge after only one month because he had hay fever, uh, he takes a job at a San Diego shipyard and writes letters to his mother about his fictitious wartime exploits. And when he returns home, he discovers that the innocent lies he's been telling have spread further than he expected. Basically, he meets up with these like Marines at this bar in San Diego. They kind of like the guy and they go, hey, we're taking you back to your mother because she needs to have her son there, and we're going to pretend you fought with us in World War II. And so it becomes this just, like, so, like, everyone thinks he's a hero, but he never really fought in the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, his fiance or the, his girlfriend, he told to marry someone else, is now engaged to the mayor's son, uh, but she still loves him. Um, and then they realize, because he's a war hero, hey, we should just have you run for mayor of the town. And he's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Like everything I've been saying, it basically is like the lie just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so again, this was shot in 1943. It was not released until 1944. Uh, again, producer Buddy De Silva re-edited the movie without Sturgis's consent. And after a disastrous preview screening from that from that uh, cut, Paramount brought Sturgis back to rework on the film. At this point, he'd already been let go from Paramount, and he decided to come back and fix the movie for free. Uh, to make sure that it was his exact version of the film. That's why I'm so glad you're going to marry Forrest. Why, it's such a load off my mind. There's no hope for Mom. She'll just have to leave town. But at least you can say you suspected all along, and that's why you broke off with me and married Forrest. Who's all right if you like people like that. Then you won't get hurt, see? Because outside of Mom, you're the only thing in the world I care for. The only thing that matters. Now that it's over, I want you to know that that letter I wrote was the hardest thing I ever did in all my life. I thought about you every night, 
Every morning and every afternoon, every girl I saw reminded me of you, and every flower I, I wanted to send to you. That's why I'm so happy, see, because you've had such a narrow escape. I think you're a little bit feverish. Oh, me? I'm just a little bit phony, that's all, a little. You are phony. That's right. You don't have to tell anybody. They'll find out soon enough. But I'm never going to be mayor or anything else. You understand? I've never been in Guadalcanal. I never won any medals. I've never even been in the Marine Corps, really. You understand? You've had a very hard day, dear. Yes, but wait till tomorrow comes. But his final film that was released by Paramount called The Great Moment... He was not able to save. It was kind of a, it's a, bi, it's a biopic about um, uh, the guy, a dentist who like basically created like anesthesia or whatever. It was supposed to be like a biopic drama or whatever. And they recut it to be a Sturgis comedy. And it was essentially going to be told like triumph over pain is what the title was. And it became known as the great moment. Um, and it was the first failure of Sturgis's career and his last film released by Paramount. Uh, when he was released by Paramount, he was named the third highest paid person in America at this point. Wow. Because he was being paid as a director, writer, and producer. Okay. But he still had financial tr- troubles at this point. Uh, he got into financial troubles after leaving Paramount because he put a lot of his money into two ventures that didn't go so well. One was an engineering company, and the other was a club called The Players, which was on Sunset Boulevard, and it was a mixture of a theater and a restaurant. Uh, he had poured all of his money into this, and they both failed. And then the IRS came at one point. Uh, during this time as well, after leaving Paramount, he made a deal with Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes comes back into play. Uh, to form a production company. Uh, before Sturgis could even finish their first movie together, Hughes called the deal off. Uh, their film, originally titled The Sin of Harold Diddlebach, which was filmed in 1947, was not released until 1950 under the new name Mad Wednesday after Howard Hughes re-edited the entire film. You know, that's 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 so stunning because from everything I, I, I know, Howard Hughes was a very reliable uh, <laughs> person, not really prone to any flights of fancy or anything. Well, allegedly, in, in Preston Surge's book, he talks about how he thinks he ended the deal because... And the movie they were shooting there was like horses or whatever. Mm. And he asked the 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 horse wrangler, hey, can I like ride the horse during like lunch break just to get away for a little bit and just kind of have a little like little relaxation on the horse? And the horse guy's like, yeah, sure. No problem. Sturgis didn't know he was getting charged every time he was going to be on that horse. And so <laughs> Howard Hughes apparently gets a uh a bill from the horse wrangler he's like this dude is using me how you know howard he is in his paranoia um and he's like this dude's using me calls him up it's like deals off like we're done uh and and basically they re-released it was this movie and i think maybe one other film he produced uh got released years later uh, when when Howard Hughes bought RKO, he released them under RKO's label. Yeah, he just stored them away along with his jars of pee until until the yep. time was right to release it. That's all he was watching when he's just in his like movie room naked yep. is is what he's doing. Uh, so after the sin of Harold Diddlebach, also Mad Wednesday, he made a movie called Unfaithfully Yours, which is probably the last great Preston Sturgis movie. Um, the film stars Rex Harrison, and it's about a man's failed attempt to murder his wife who he believes is being unfaithful to him. It's a weird movie because it, what it does is he's like a conductor, a music con- mm-hmm. like orchestra conductor. 
and it tells like it's like a tri- like a, a a triplet or whatever where it's telling three different stories, three different versions of him trying to like get rid of his wife, but they're being done in his mind while he's conducting the orchestra. So at the end of each story, it comes out of his eye, shows the orchestra, and when it's going back in a new story, it it uh, dollies into his eye and goes into a new story. So it's a very unique piece. It was critically beloved when it came out. Was a box office failure. Hmm. Um, then he makes a movie called The Beautiful Blonde from Bashful Bit or Beautiful Blonde from Bashful Ben. Um, and then he, his final film is The Diary of Major Thompson. I believe it was also released in the states as the French. They are a funny race. <laughs> that <laughs> that was the name. That's something he'd been film. holding on to since he did a uh, Palm Beach story for sure. Yeah. So basically w- when he couldn't get any work, he went over to France again uh, and met and re-, re basically met up with old friends that, that lived in the village that he lived in in France for a time. Uh, and they decided to make a movie. Uh, the French, they are a funny race is what was the U S title release, but it was diary of major Thompson in the, in France. He shot two versions, a French version and American version. Uh, released in the U.S. didn't do well. Um, so yeah, so he does that. So it's crazy to me to think that a guy who released eight movies in five years, then for the next fourteen years, only releases five movies. Yeah. So Sturgis's kind of ending in the midst of writing his autobiography, Sturgis passed away at a New York hotel at the age of sixty, the same age of his mother. Um, of a heart attack on August 6, 1959. The final r- words he wrote for his autobiography goes as this. These ruminations and the beer and coleslaw that I washed down while dictating them are giving me a bad case of indigestion. Over the years, though, I've suffered so many attacks of indigestion that I am well-versed in the remedy. And just a little Maalox, lie down, stretch out, and hope to God I don't croak. He died 20 minutes later. <laughs> is how the book reads. Wow. What a way to go. Uh, so on to unrealized projects. He had a lot of stuff that he worked on for a bit, but I, there's two things I want to bring up there. Kind of one could have been a big deal. One was made and I don't know what extent he worked on it. So he apparently at one point during, I guess towards the end. So the late forties when he's kind of going through his like downward trend uh, and not having any hits, he's brought on to work on Roman holiday, which oh. ends up becoming Audrey Hepburn's big breakout and Gregory Peck. So he worked on it at one point at the same time. I think he was working with Billy Wilder on a movie um, with Yul Brynner. Um, So he was kind of doing a lot of just like assigned work when things kind of went South for him. The big project that could have been big for him uh, was an adaptation of a Broadway hit play by George Bernard Shaw called the millionaires. And the play starred Catherine Hepburn. And Catherine Hepburn wanted Sturgis to write and direct the movie, which I think he started writing a draft of it, but no one would pay them because they didn't trust Sturgis as a director anymore. If Sturgis had become that eccentric, like it sounds later in his life, the money I would pay to be a fly on the wall between him and and Howard Hughes going back and forth. Yeah. So (laughs) Howard Hughes and Catherine Hepburn come back in at the end of the month again after Philadelphia story. Yeah, him and Hughes, I think they were fine. I just, yeah, it was the, they did not see eye to eye at one point. And with the millionaires, I think he actually stayed with Hepburn at her house in like New York or wherever she was, Connecticut or whatever. 
and wrote the movie there. I, you know what? I bet she probably baked him some brownies. I don't know if you know this. Catherine Hepburn, very famous for her brownies. Is she real? Was she I'm really? I'm not lying. Google Catherine Hepburn's brownie recipe. <laughs> it's a thing. Oh, man. Does she have a cookbook? Or I don't know. I don't know where the recipe comes from. I feel like it's like okay. in her autobiography or something. But but okay. all I know is like the, the Catherine Hepburn brownie is like a very famous brownie recipe. Okay. All right. Let's move on to stats. Um, right. Most popular film. Uh, I'm going to go with Lady Eve. No, not Lady it's Eve. It's Sullivan's Travels. Sullivan's Cause Travels. Because all, all the all the Cohen heads on Letterbox. Yep. Go back and watch that one. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, least popular film. Uh, I'm gonna go with Harold Diddlebach. No, it's it's the Diary of Major Thompson, also known as the the French. They are a funny race. <laughs> uh, thirty three people have seen it on Letterboxd. All right, highest rated films. Uh, Sullivan's Travels. That's number one. Lady Eve. That's number two. Uh, you don't have to guess number three because it's a five way tie. <laughs> Just all uh, the rest of his movies. Pretty much. So, Sullivan's Travels, 4.0. Lady Eve, 3.9. And then five more films, 3.8. Very strong. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all. No. Uh, it's Hail the Conquering Hero, 3.8. Palm Beach Story, 3.8. Remember the Di- Night, which he was a writer for, 3.8. Unfaithful Yours, 3.8. And Miracle of Morgan's Creek, 3.8. And then... Lowest rated film, the 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 Diary of Major Thompson. Well, that one doesn't have a rating, so I, I mean, I guess you could. Uh, count nobody's that. even rated it. Okay, no, it's I mean, the, it's the one about the dentist. It's not that one actually. It's the beautiful blonde from Bashful Bend. Wow, come on, guys, you got to rate that one high just for the alliteration alone. Yeah, apparently that's streaming on Stars right now. It's one of the three films of Sturgis that are actually streaming somewhere. For, for, for like for if you have that service i didn't i didn't watch that one I'm sorry. Uh, yeah most appearances uh mccray not mccray he had he had three i guess I know a lot of the, the little character actors kind of worked yeah. with him a lot joe mccray might be the, the one that's the big star that worked multiple times uh william dimmerist oh yeah who is plays the father in miracle of morgan's creek can mm-hmm. you guess how many appearances that he was in of, of- well, i know he was in lady eve yeah um was he was he in that the gun club for yep. Palm Beach story. He's he's the one who's bang 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 bang. Hey, you used real bullets. I could do that too. Um I'm gonna say he did five. Uh double that. He did ten. Wow. Is that all of them? He did he did all of almost all the ones he directed, at least in that like five year period, I think. And they did two that he wrote before he directed. Wow. So he really loved him, yeah. is what it sounds like. Um okay. Final director questions, because we have a few more questions after this, but final director questions. Is Sturgis an auteur? For better or for worse, I think he is. <laughs> it's kind of wild how much the studio seemed to have let him get away with at that yeah. in that time. And and it's all in his voice. Sometimes I wonder if, if someone needed to to put a filter on his voice a little bit, but it's all there for sure. <laughs> I agree. Um because i mean being is because he's the again there are people who were screenwriters and screen like screenwriting directors before like the chaplains and the dw griffiths of the world but like no one became went from screenwriter to director and him doing it kind of paved the way for people like john houston and billy wilder um one other 
brief tidbit that and say um miracles miracle of morgan's creek and hail the conquering hero got nominated for best original screenplay in the same exact year wow only three other people post him have done that a guy by the name of frank butler and the other two francis ford coppola and oliver stone i this is another episode but i, I feel like there, you, oliver stone and uh and Sturgis, I could I could draw some similarities. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Uh what are Sturgis's running themes or tropes? I mean, I think he is about askew eschewing am I using that word right? Eschewing. Eschewing. Um, uh he's he you know, a lot of, we talked about a lot of these films are kind of poking fun at, at at class and at wealth for sure. And I think he's I think he's aiming for just like american values i think so too because you've got lady eve is all about how like being being proper and being like moral or being is is overrated uh palm beach story is well and and selvin's travels is like you know the upper class doesn't know everything they're 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 yeah. kind of dumb being being wealthy and successful is overrated palm beach story being mar- marriage is kind of overrated and the wealthy don't really know what they're doing yeah, I think the big one, the big clue, if you're looking at overall what his like big thing is, is is that Morgan's Creek isn't about class; it is about small town American values. Yeah, and 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 that movie is saying like you should not judge this woman for being you know, basically unmarried and pregnant. Yeah, um, and I think that's the that I think that's the big tell is he's just going for everything that is kind of old-fashioned and 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 and, you know maybe maybe the soldiers maybe the 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 military don't have everyone's best interests at heart like he's 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 going for a lot of just good old american values in these movies i mean even even like uh great mcginty is that thing where it's attacking politics and politicians Mm. i mean the whole thing about voter fraud and and that movie which some might find relevant today but it, it sounds like with the way he was raised he was he was raised very much outside of, of normal american society at that time so i think yes. he definitely came at it with the viewpoint of an outsider and he said this is kind of ridiculous you know 1940s yeah. especially we've just gotten through to the depression we're on a world war it it's kind of dumb for us to be acting you know there's there, the world is changing and and, yeah, and yeah. the way that we feel about american society and american values need to change as well and that that seems to be what his overall thesis is throughout his films yeah the vanity fair article talks about how like at this point you're getting a lot of like american pride movies of some way of like the capras and that's even kind of a running joke in sullivan's travels like what's wrong with capra mm-hmm. like that's a whole line or john ford but uh, even with its very slapstick nature and its very comedic nature again i said earlier in the show it's like you're still seeing kind of a more truthful version of america than what most of those films are portraying he's yeah he's kind of making like what sullivan wants to make yeah basically (laughs) sullivan's like i gotta find the real america and and sergis is like i kind of got it i got it i got it tuned in man and so that's why i said with 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 like hail the conquering hero as well just talking about like this small town accepting this young man to like he's a he's a, a war hero and then just like basically building up this like persona around this kid mm-hmm. who just like wanted to and and because 
he built up this persona around his dad who died in World War One. He's like, oh, in order to be a good American, I have to go and fight for my country and actually fight and not get, like, uh, discharged for sneezing too much, basically, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting portrait of America in this time. And, again, you're seeing different facets. There's at one point, I think, in Hail the Conquering Hero, I don't know how the joke is done but he has a uh when 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 eddie bracken's coming home uh on the train again transportation is a big thing in trains in in his movies but there's like everyone has signs and there's like an asian character with the sign like japanese Mm -hmm. which feels very different for this period in america being is there's a lot of hatred for japanese americans because of world war ii yeah. So you're seeing these like interesting like again they're not full on big characters or whatever, but you're seeing vi- different like the different voices within American society, even if it is just a visual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what kind of makes this di- Sturgis a very interesting director for the time period. But we talked about the American thing. We talked about with running themes the 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 usage of time and how he plays with time. Um, his cold opens, um, how many of his movies start with the ending mm-hmm. or start with a he, ending. He has these like narrative framing devices. A lot of the time that's, that's very, uh, very citizen Kane. Like you said. Yeah. He's, but it's, and Vanity Fair talks about, he starts with endings, but then he almost refuses to give you an ending for the movie. Yeah. Especially lady Eve is, is like, right when you think it's about to end, it's like, no, it's done. There's yeah. You're like there's one more scene we really need for this story and he's like nope, this you you don't get it. This you got to imagine it. Or it's it's Palm Beach story and even Miracle and Morgan's Creek Creek of just like, yeah, there's more story here, but no, we're good. <laughs> I'm good right here. Yeah. And like and at the, and he talks about that even in Easy Living, the one he wrote where like at the end of the movie, that fur that's thrown at the beginning of the movie where it lands on Gene Arthur's head, it's thrown again at the end of the, of easy living and it lands on another woman's head. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that, Oh, I could have told that story if I wanted to, but I told you this story instead. Yeah. And that he does that a lot. And it's the same with Palm beach story. Hey, I could have told you this story, but I decided to tell you this story instead. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, you can, you can definitely see why he has captured the imagination of, of, a lot of people in the film world, um, yeah. you know, Bogdanovich, I, I know Bill Hader is a big fan, uh, but whether or not he was really hitting at a hundred percent, he was definitely doing something different and making his vision. Yeah. And you got to respect that, especially for this time period. Yeah. There's a great line. Again, I keep going about Vanity Fair article, but it's just a great piece on Sturgis. And it says, Sturgis was an American original, which is a dangerous thing to be. Mm-hmm. Especially during classical Hollywood. Yeah. And then final question about Sturgis. How does Sturgis fit into this genre? Yeah, I think he's I think he's definitely towards the more absurd end of the spectrum. Yeah. It's, you know, I think one of my favorite things about the genre is, is the playfulness it had with the Hayes Code. And... And I think that's why he's a. It was a little shocking for me to watch his stuff because he he doesn't really care. Nope. It's it, you know like you said Morgan's Creek just kind of feels like he was like yeah let's have her get married, 
so he can say that she's pregnant but it's very obvious that he just wants to get to that she had a one night stand yeah and and so it kind of lacks a, it, it's a, it's more absurd but it kind of lacks that subtlety it, it yeah it's it's so different to take something like miracle from morgan's creek and something like philadelphia story and be like yeah. these are two you know lady eve it's something something like lady eve versus bringing up baby is a lot closer but it's wild to look at this this genre we've been studying and say that Philadelphia Story and Miracle at Morgan's Creek are, are in the same genre. Yeah. But they are. With the war happening, with Sturgis coming in, you're definitely getting a new phase. Phase mm-hmm. two, as Marvel would say. Uh, the screwball comedy. Um, when the war starts. And I think Sturgis is kind of the, the guy at the forefront for mm-hmm. it. Um, so, yeah. So... Last thing, concluding our screwball comedy genre, a few things. Uh, I'm adding a new segment called the Apology Section. Uh, I made a comment to Thomas a few episodes ago on What's Up, Doc, about the ending, and I didn't like the movie reference they made to Love Story. Uh, I complained about it on the show, and then when I watched Ball of Fire, and even in Sullivan's Travels, there's a bunch of them, of references to the other movies, and I was like, okay, maybe it's just a genre thing that I'm now learning that movie references and 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 topical references are very kind of prominent in this genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Thomas, I apologize. For I saying... accept your apology on behalf <laughs> of Buck Henry and Peter Bogdanovich. Because <laughs> there is a reference that I loved in Ball of Fire where uh, Barbara Stanwyck says to Gary Cooper, like, when they're talking about slang, and he goes, oh, do you know what it means to, like, get you on the Amici? And she's like, it means get you on the phone. He's like, what do you mean? She goes, oh, because of the, uh, because, uh, because he invented it. And he's like, what do you mean? And she goes, oh, like the movie. And I read up that Don Amici, the actor who is best known for being one of the Duke brothers in the trading places played Alexander Graham Bell in a movie called the story of Alexander Graham Bell <laughs> in 1939. And they're referencing him as he was basically, they called uh, the phone Amici because he played the guy because he played Alexander Graham Bell rabbit hole. I went through <laughs> to, to uh, find out what that joke meant. Um, and then uh, next question, what did you learn about the genre this month when going through it? Cause we don't always talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely expanded my horizons and, and no, no offense to my college professor, you know, covered, covered <laughs> what he could. in 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 the couple of weeks, it wasn't a full screwball comedy class. It was divided yeah. up into like three, uh, kind of specific genres we were talking about but but yeah it, it definitely expanded my horizons and, it, and it's continued to make me think anytime we come to screwball comedies i'm always like why don't we make screwball comedies anymore and then i and yeah. then i think about these things that were unique to a screwball comedy and just remind myself how much they've permeated modern comedy and modern romantic comedy especially and and like i, I think i said this a few episodes ago, I think our modern romantic comedy has a lot more in common with a screwball comedy than what yeah. Hollywood would have considered a romantic comedy pre-screwball. Yeah. Um, and and so it's always fun to come back to these. And, and because, like we talked about with Philadelphia Story, this is one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite films. It's one of my favorite subgenres. And it's such an interesting genre in that it, it's so pure and concentrated 1930s, 1940s, and it's out. Uh, and, and yeah, to kind of explore the edges of it a little bit more, like we've just done with Mm -hmm. Preston Sturgis, get a little bit more absurd with it more than I'm used to Mm -hmm. just helps me continue to see 
how it kind of dissipated and when we lost what what you would think of as a pure screwball comedy it just kind of went out into the world and became other things yeah it just yeah it, it inspired multiple things and then turn as we found with Sturgis, inspired filmmakers who took those that style those techniques those tropes and morphed it into something else mm-hmm. um when you talk about the rom-com i think of something i think of someone like Nora efron who we've talked about on the show before a year ago on an episode in february um because her parents were old hollywood screenwriters and i think they wrote some screwball comedies and so efron i think is a big influence in terms of like the 80s 90s and 2000s rom-coms mm-hmm. of like the new york setting and the battle of the sexes and all that or became she became the template but she was inspired by these specific uh films of this era so the stuff she took she put in a blender made it into her own version of it and then people took her thing and kind of tried to copy her thing for a couple decades Mm -hmm. um and so that's what you get um and yeah even with this when talking about screwball comedy of talking about looking at the production code and kind of the limitations that people have when they're making films i do find it interesting in the midst of to to date the podcast a little bit depending on when you're listening uh, to deal with covid in a way of limitations of production limitations and what you can do to get around certain things i think i've even heard like early on in covid when they're trying to go back to shooting they're talking about how they're watching old movies to see how i can have people touch or not touch each other and have romances without things because these films had to do it because of the Hayes code so it's mm-hmm. interesting to see how things kind of come back around, but in a different context. Um, and the final question, I think you've asked this last time when we talked about neo-noirs, but what's some of your favorite ones we didn't talk about this month? Yeah, I mean, we I, I obviously keep referencing Bringing Up Baby, even yeah. though we didn't cover it this month. It's one of my favorites, and I think it's it's a very important film within this uh, within this genre. One that I had not really thought about as a screwball comedy. It's a movie I love, but I, I came back to it this Valentine's Day to watch because I was just looking for, for a rom-com is uh, Broadcast News. Oh, I yeah. I absolutely love that movie. I adore that movie. I think it's one of the best kind of love triangle movies. But I came back to it this time. You know, I'm in the midst of all this screwball comedy that we've been watching. And it's, it is a love triangle, kind of like uh, Philadelphia Story. And it's, but it, instead of being about class, it's about, it's, it's these three people, they all work in broadcast news and they all have different ideas of what the future of broadcast news should be. And that almost becomes the class differences for them. They're, they're all three just kind of clashing on like what, where news is going, what media is going to become. And it's, and when you watch it, you know, it feels heavy, especially now, you yeah. know, 30 years yeah. after it was made and well, 40 years after it was 40 made, years. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're talking about how cable news is going to be the downfall of American society. But, <laughs> this is true. but, uh, but when you, when you watch it through that kind of screwballs, you know, it's very similar to Philadelphia story when they're talking about the upper class and, and the lower class. And, you know, they, um, Holly Hunter has this just absolute disdain for William Hurt because he's a different type of news than she is, but she's yeah. physically attracted to him. And, and it does very much skewer love and it also has that kind of rapid fire dialogue by setting it yeah. in this this newsroom they're able to invoke this classical hollywood rapid fire dialogue 
but by making it also completely natural because everything's so fast paced because they're working in a newsroom yeah it's um, very his, his girl friday-esque yeah in a way. yeah absolutely yeah but i love that movie and i i you know it's one of, it's something i learned this month i i would not have viewed it through a screwball comedy lens but it absolutely is 100 percent. yeah no that's a good point i guess i gotta add it to the list um i'll i'll say uh one well we talked about his girl fry a little bit but not his girl fry is one i'll say uh to be or not to be which we talked about mm. last year uh in our theater month which is also a screwball comedy um where it's uh basically a a, a group of 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 act, uh, acting troupe in i think uh where are they at again is it poland uh, poland yeah a group of a, a acting troupe in poland uh who hath like basically the, the the gist of it is they end up having to pretend to be nazis in order to like help some people out and but it's like a screwball comedy very early uh what i think besides what's up doc but would inspire mel brooks uh, a, a good deal because mel yeah. brooks later remake the movie um but yeah to be or not to be another film called my man godfrey with the mm-hmm. uh, william powell uh Ninochka with uh greg garbo a lot of great ones um but that was this month the screwball comedy genre next month thomas we're doing something different it's finally here i've been gunning for this i think since we've had this podcast it's been a while since you invited me on to talk about matt damon i was like when are we going to talk about peter weir perhaps the most underrated auteur of our time he's one of my favorite directors i think he's got an incredible collection of films that he's made and and we're going to cover them all Uh, unprecedented yeah unprecedented director month coming at you because some directors you find out don't really fit into a genre yeah and peter weir is one of those guys we've been trying to fit him into a month forever and we just keep being like that's not really fair to put him in this one wouldn't be fair to these other movies so yeah and we i think we're actually we're gearing up to do it we're gearing up to appear we're episode right before COVID hit Mm -hmm. because i was watching a bunch of peter weir movies as were you yeah of like oh we'll do it one of these days and then COVID hit and we changed our entire format of how we would do it of we're Mm -hmm. instead of spending an episode we'd spend a whole month on something and now uh because thomas and thomas and i both love peter weir actually i like peter weir thomas has helped me appreciate peter weir more (laughs) as i've met tom as i've gotten to know thomas uh, so yeah, we're spending a whole month talking about Peter Weir. If you're wondering who the heck is this guy, because some you've of you seen might one of his be. movies, which is the beauty of Peter Weir. You've seen, you've, I guarantee you, you've seen a Peter Weir movie. <laughs> you might just didn't know it, but he directed such films as Dead Poet Society, The Truman Show, um, Witness, Master and Commander, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah, um, so many, and we're gonna go into all of them. And and also, what's helpful for you, the listener is that he has 14 movies and 12 of them are currently streaming on several streaming sites. If you can find them, we're trying to structure it. It's going to be fun Four episodes of Peter Weir. So get to streaming right now. Yeah. And I think that's all we have on Preston Sturgis and the screwball comedy. So make sure you subscribe to the nation podcast and our podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen on. Yeah, guys, uh, a review really helps us and not just gives us feedback. You know, if you love the show and you think there's no notes, I have no notes I could give on the show, that's fine. But uh, it does boost our visibility 
to other people just with the way that that a lot of uh podcast platforms work you know spread the word in person as well but if you're looking for another way to get the word out there drop us a comment and if you haven't already make sure you like us on facebook twitter and instagram thomas as always thank you for coming on absolutely thank you for thank you for giving us screwball comedy month after three months of murder and crime and and darkness um everyone thank you so much for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon bye